0: The opening words of Psalm 23 are these, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or some of your versions might read, The Lord is my shepherd, there is nothing I lack. This is the main idea of the entire psalm. And all the verses that come after this one opening verse will go on to demonstrate the truth of the claim that with God as our shepherd, we will never want for any good or needed thing. And what I want you to see uh, as a matter of first importance is that David is not writing this as an armchair philosopher. He is not somebody who just likes waxing on about God. He is not an academic theologian. He He is writing this as a deeply personal reflection. He is not writing abstract theories of God, but rather his own personal experience of him. And we all know that it's one thing to know stuff about God, but it's quite another to know God and experience Him. And David is writing from his personal experience when he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me. He restores my soul. You are with me. My cup overflows. Vance Havner once wrote, To some, Christianity is an argument. To many, it is a performance. To a few, it is experienced. In another psalm, Psalm 34.8, David wrote, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to get somebody to eat a food that they have never tried before. Have you guys ever had this experience maybe with a child or somebody that's new to your region I, my experience is everywhere in rural America, they think rhubarb is their little secret for some reason. I don't know why this is true. We've all tried rhubarb. I can remember, I've told you before, though, as a child, I had a hard time getting past the appearance of rhubarb, right? It looks, I don't want to be gross, but like bloody boogers or something when it's all cooked up. It looks nasty. And my grandmother tried, tried valiantly to convince me, no, it is delicious, And I looked at it, and it looked like something that had been delicious but had since been regurgitated. And I did not want to try it. True story, she actually force fed me rhubarb one time, and it was delicious. (laughs) It worked. But when David says, Taste and see that the Lord is good, it's really interesting that he doesn't say, Study and discover. It's really the 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 tasting is the experiencing of his goodness. God must be tasted, that is experienced personally in order to know his goodness. And Psalm 23 just about oozes humility. If you could pick this psalm up and squeeze it, a humility would splatter on your shoes, it would puddle at your feet. You could fill a bucket with humility if you could ring out Psalm 23. Look at these opening words. David is making two statements at the same time. One about who God is. God, you are my shepherd. And inversely, what is he saying about himself? He is making a clear statement about God and another about who he is in relationship to God. He's a sheep. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. You are a shepherd, God, and I am one in need of a shepherd. You're my shepherd. He's making both statements simultaneously. And we must learn to rest our hearts and minds in the joyous truth of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. This is the very stuff of humility. It's a joyful resting in who God is and who we are in relationship to him. And I really believe this, I think if you can show me an area of your life that is not marked by a joyful, trustful, contented resting in the Lord, I'm willing to bet that that is an area where you are currently struggling to rest in the truth of who God is and who you are in relationship to him. I can illustrate this point in another psalm, Psalm 61, where David shows us how this works. In Psalm 61, he poured out his heart to God. He said, Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. My heart is faint. You know, in the Bible, faint-heartedness, have you ever felt faint-hearted over something? A news report, a doctor's visit, overdraft notice that you were not expecting. Whatever the case was, have you ever felt faint of heart? In the Bible, faint-heartedness is often used to describe a sinking heart, a troubled heart, despair, and inner turmoil. It conveys the sense that the bottom is falling out. David's heart is faint, and so he cries to God. And when David is feeling that way, he cries to the Lord in prayer, and what is his request? In Psalm 61, 2, it says this, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge. The rock that is higher than I. God, you're up there, and I am way, way, way down here. For example, sometimes we don't have enough money, and we need money, right? And when that happens, we're tempted to feel faint of heart. And the faint-heartedness that we feel in such moments has as its root the, a pride that blinds us, blinds us to the shepherd's presence and deceives us into thinking there is no rock higher than me. There is no shepherd, and therefore I must be my own provider God. And that frame of mind will inevitably make us feel despairing and faint of heart. When I was in high school, I got a job working one summer for a man named Jim Graham. Jim owned like a bazillion businesses. I don't know how he did it. He owned a catering business, a party supply store. We'd set up tents. He had a a car wash operation. He had all these different things he was running at the same time. And the man was just a shell (laughs) of a human being. He was broken. He was physically stooped over, very stressed. He snapped at everyone continuously. Uh, When he owned a service master chain as well, I should add that. And in, In my breaks from college, I would go home and work for him on service master crew. And I was uh, just torn apart over a Christmas break to learn that my friend Jim had taken his own life. Uh, And I can just remember thinking, uh, my brother quoted this psalm in reflection about Jim Graham as we were mourning. We had all worked for Jim, me and all my brothers. And Jim was a guy who when he looked around his life, he saw no rock that was taller than he was. If things went bad, he had no shepherd to turn to. It was all on him. And he just cratered within under the weight of it all. When he felt faint of heart, he had no one to cry to. He just broke and caved in internally. So when David, a man who was well accustomed to external pressures, he's a king. He, he feels all the pressures of Jim Graham, plus many, many more, I'm sure. When he feels faint-hearted, faint of heart, he cries to the rock that is taller than he is. Do you have a shepherd, or does the buck end with you? And faint-heartedness has as its root a pride that blinds you to the shepherd's presence. David knows what to do when this happened. He cries out to God, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The Lord is my shepherd. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings, he says in Psalm 61.4. Psalm 23 is a celebration of our smallness and insufficiency. It is an outright, full-throated celebration that you are not big and sufficient and strong and all-knowing. You're a sheep, and we celebrate it. Now, the experience of meeting trials and experiencing faint-heartedness and crying out to God, the cycle that plays out in our life over and over and over again, has a way of training us in some important ways. As you follow the Good Shepherd, and as you go through this cycle over and over again over the course of your life where you meet some horrible trial, You experience faintness of heart, you cry out to God, and you find shelter in him. What it does is it trains you in some very important ways. In James 1, he's writing about something very similar. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, get this, lacking in nothing." The Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I lack. Trials have this effect of training you to trust the shepherd in such a way that the end result is you can say there is nothing I lack, I do not want. How does this work? As we bring worries to the shepherd about a future cut short, he promises eternal life and pleasures at his right hand forevermore. When we're wronged, cheated, stolen from, he reminds us that we have a better and a lasting possession in Christ, Hebrews 10:34. and that there is a treasure laid up where rust, moth and thief can't destroy or plunder. Matthew 6. We bring him our loneliness, and he reminds us that we, he will be with us always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28. We bring him our wrecked bodies, and he promises that we will be given new ones, and that even this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory, 2 Corinthians 4. We bring him those who have wronged us, and he reminds us that there is a coming day of justice and that vengeance belongs to him. We bring him our anxiety, and he gives us a peace that passes all understanding. We bring to him our lack of resources, and he reminds us of his words in Matthew 6, that if God feeds the birds and clothes the flower, flowers, will he not do the same for his own children? As we are trained through our trials to trust and cling to Christ, remaining steadfast, we are brought to a more perfect maturity where we can say like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in, in, in any and every situation, whether well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. So, the first thing I want you to see is that you have an incredible shepherd. When we look around, there is a rock that is taller than us. There are wings under which we are encouraged to come take refuge. And if this morning you are feeling faint of heart, I think that God would want you to turn to him as, his, as your shepherd. The second half of this is, I shall not want. In Psalm 23, David begins by speaking of pastures, and he ends by stating as a confident expectation that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And in between green pastures and the house of the Lord forever, what does he speak of? Well, he speaks of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The form that Psalm 23 takes is that of an overview of a believer's life, with emphasis on the way that God cares for and provides and guides his people through life and also through death. So in my thinking, I divide Psalm 23 into two parts. The first half speaks of our great shepherd God who leads us and cares for us in life. David says he leads me, he makes me lie down in green pastures. beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me into paths of righteousness. He guides me, he comforts me, he defends me. That's your life. That's right now. And the second half of the psalm speaks to me of the same shepherd who leads us and cares for us as we pass through death. There is nothing that I will want in life or in the moment when I come to the end of my life that my shepherd does not prepare and make ready for me. I look to him in trust in the days of my life and when I come to the end of it. He is that great of a shepherd. He brings me through. He vindicates me by preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He anoints my head, my cup overflows, goodness and mercy in a dwelling place forever. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now my parents, Barry and Janet Tate, they did a great job providing for me and my siblings when we were growing up under their roof. State Road Advent Christian Church has been a wonderful employer to me that has generously met my needs and made it possible for me to provide for my family. But brothers and sisters, there is no earthly parent. There is no employer. There is no pay package or benefits that can help a person overcome the problem of death. There is no insurance for that. (laughs) There is no way to pay for that. And this morning, one of the truths I want us to see and celebrate in Psalm 23 is that God is such an amazing shepherd that he not only provides for his people during the days of their life, giving them everything in abundance that is good for them and needed, but he also provides for them when they come to the end of it. He brings his flock through the veil and into pleasures at his right hand forevermore. David said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if you have passed from death to life, if you have put your trust in Jesus for salvation, you are already living in eternity. This is without end, but it gets a lot better. (laughs) That's the wonderful thing about it. David said, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. As we move through Psalm 23, we begin to see the parallels between the God who David was praising and Jesus, who would come all those many years after David, but whom David foretold in prophecy, saying, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. David wrote of a shepherd who makes his sheep lie down. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." David wrote of a shepherd God who restored his soul. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. David wrote of green pastures, which of course to a sheep is food. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. David wrote of still waters. Jesus said, I am the living water. David wrote of a shepherd guide who leads his sheep. Jesus said, I am the way. David wrote of a shepherd who leads his sheep into paths of righteousness. And Zechariah prophesied concerning Jesus that he would guide our feet into the way of peace. He is our righteousness. So we see that Jesus is not just the provider of food and water and rest and guidance and life. He is not just the one who leads his sheep to those things. He is those things personally. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is our righteousness. He doesn't show us the way and guide us into it. He is the way personally. And he is the truth and the life. He is the very personification of goodness and mercy. And in him, We have a forever hope, a confident expectation that we will dwell in the house of our Lord forever. And before us this morning is set a table, the communion table. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this table has been prepared for you in the presence of your enemies, sin and death. He anoints your head with oil. This is biblical language. Here, David mixes metaphors. Up to this point, he's been talking about David and sheep. I mean, shepherds and sheep. And I'm aware that shepherds did use oil for various functions with their sheep to heal them and things like that. But it seems to me more that he is switching metaphors towards the end of the psalm because he talks about my cup overflowing. Sheep don't drink from cups, (laughs) right? And here he says, you anoint my head with oil. And this probably has more to do with the Old Testament Jewish practice of oil, anointing somebody's head with oil as a sign of welcome. Remember when Jesus ate at the home of Simon the Pharisee, and he says, you did not anoint my head with oil when I came into your house. Do you remember that story? Uh, Here, this is very much the same. What David is saying to God is, you have welcomed me (laughs) to your home. You've welcomed me. You've accepted me. You've anointed my head with oil which is the sign of welcome. Are you aware you've been welcomed by God into his very household? It's an amazing statement. He anoints my head with oil. This is a gesture of welcome, acceptance, blessing. Our cup overflows in the abundance of his love, grace, and mercy. And contrary to all the other world religious system where man works and serves their gods in order to please and placate them, you have to do, do, do to earn the favor of the gods. Here, in a great reversal, the God of Christianity is pleased to serve man. He prepares the table. He plays the servant. Remember the words of Jesus in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What an amazing God. What a different God is the God that David is writing about in Psalm 23 that is our God. Where he does not call us to serve him in the way we imagine. He is so perfect. We have nothing to bring him but our need. And so he puts on the apron. He serves you. David Wilkerson writes, Meanwhile, As God is preparing and serving your feast, he makes your enemies sit on the outer fringe of the scene and watch everything unfold. They see the Lord himself spreading your table with food, escorting you to your seat and waiting on you. Then they watch as you fill up your your soul with heaven's delightful fare. I tell you, no demon power, including the devil himself, could ever comprehend this kind of love, mercy, and grace." Wilkerson continues, What an incredible scene! Can you picture it? Your enemies are in shock. They were sure God was going to strike you down for all your many failures. They were prepared to stand over you, gloating as you fell into destruction. Yet now they have been ordered to watch as you feast on food served by God Himself. They're forced to observe how the Lord serves you, feeds you, and anoints you with the oil of joy and gladness. You are being vindicated. All your hopes backed up with the performance of God when we come to this table. The story of man's fall and God's plan to redeem us are bookended by two invitations to come and eat. Adam and Eve in the garden were told to eat, and in eating, they were banished. And what you are being invited to right now in this moment, which is prescribed in Scripture, is to come and eat the fruit of a very strange kind of tree. And in doing so, we are being welcomed home. You are being, we are, your head is being anointed and welcome (laughs) when you come to this table that has been prepared for you in the presence of your enemies. The broken bread is a symbol of the broken body of Jesus, which was nailed to the cross. I don't know if everyone listening to this understands the gospel this morning, so permit me this really brief aside to just explain what we're talking about. The hope of the Christian, when we come before God, we can never say to him, I'm a good person and I get to come into heaven because that's true. If you've ever looked at church folk and wondered if they think that they are better than you, we are not. I, Josh Tate, am not a good man. I am a sinner. I am desperately wicked. Just ask Sarah Tate. (laughs) It's true. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to brag about. The only thing I can boast about is what my Jesus did for me. I am not good. That is not the basis of my hope. The basis of my hope is that Jesus was perfect. Perfect. He never sinned. God does not grade on a scale. Don't get me wrong. I think some people are objectively, morally better than others. I think that's true. I think some people commit fewer sins than other people. They lead a more decent, wholesome life. I think that exists. But at the end of the day, isn't that like comparing the floor of a dumpster to the seat of a toilet? One may be objectively cleaner, but you're not eating off of either. And the truth is, we are all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short. The standard for entry into heaven is perfection, perfection not pretty good and it says that in Romans 6:23 the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our lord it's a free gift i've talked about it many times from up here but of course the difference between a wage and a gift a wage is something you earn the wages of sin is death we've earned that but god wants to give you a free gift which is not rooted in your merit. You didn't deserve it. He's not offering the gift because you in some way leveraged him into it through your resume of good works. It's a gift. He gives it because of who he is, not who you are. He makes this very clear in Romans 5, 8, by the way, when he says that, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for you because you were good, but because Specifically, you were bad. That's why you needed it. Romans 10.9, Romans 10.13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, if you call on him believing rightly in who he is, you'll be saved. And then the wonderful truth is that nothing can then separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the gospel truth. So when we come to this table What are we celebrating? We are celebrating a God, our shepherd God, who has provided all our needs. We look to him in trust in this life as we stumble our way home, and we look to him in trust as we come to the end of this life, as we enter into our rest, awaiting the day of Jesus' return. For the flock of God, these two, the bread and the cup, are the symbols of the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. The spilled blood and the broken body of Jesus are the rod by which our enemies were beaten, driven off. And they are the staff by which our feet was guided into the way of peace. This rod and this staff, they comfort us when we come to the table. They make us cry in dark places, you are with me. I will fear no evil. I will not even fear the evil that is within me, for I am sure that Jesus died for that. And I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because in relationship to God we are sheep, which is to say we are easily frightened, we are small of mind and forgetful, God has prescribed that we should have this reminder often to remind us of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. We are sheep in the care of the good shepherd who never sleeps, who never fails, never loses a single one. He personally is our food, He is our drink. He is our rest and our guide. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. He is our protector, our provider, our life, and our forever hope.